As we come to our study through the book of James, we come to chapter 1, verse 1, and we can read that verse together, and it just says simply this, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. Now, one thing we notice right away as we take a look at this letter from James is that it was written by a man named James. Now, the problem is that there are several men mentioned James in the New Testament, but pretty reliable church tradition assigns this book to the one who's often known as James the Just, who was, in fact, the half-brother of Jesus. There's a few places in the Gospels, in Mark chapter 6 and in Matthew chapter 13, where there are listed several brothers of Jesus, uh, James, Simon, Joses, and a few others. Now, we understand that these are most properly half-brothers of Jesus. They share the same mother, that is Mary, but they didn't share the same father. These half-brothers of Jesus, such as James and his other similar brothers, uh, they had Joseph as a biological father, where Jesus was born of a virgin, a wonderful miracle that we call the virgin birth, where this virgin named Mary was miraculously uh, caused to conceive and bear forth Jesus w without normal sexual relations. So, Properly speaking, James is a brother of Jesus, yet he's a half-brother of Jesus. And as I said before, fairly reliable church tradition assigns this letter to the authorship of James the Just, this early leader of the church. Matter of fact, this man was the man who seemed to lead the church in Jerusalem. Uh, Acts chapter 15 especially points that out how James, the half-brother of Jesus, was sort of the head or the leader of the Christians in Jerusalem, especially when many of the other apostles started going elsewhere. So James is the one who wrote this letter, and this letter is sort of wonderful and unique in the New Testament. It's unique and wonderful for its emphasis upon practical Christian living. Now, I will not say that it's absolutely unique. We shouldn't think that for a moment. Uh, no, it's unique but not absolutely so. There are other letters in the New Testament that also share an emphasis on practical Christian living. But James certainly has its own character, its own style. It's very direct. Many of its statements are given in very short, sort of uh, pregnant and meaningful terms, uh, such as uh, many people make James in the New Testament to be similar to the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. And I think you can see some similarities. Both are imparting practical wisdom for life and really challenging the reader to live in a godly way. It's very possible that this letter of James that we have before us right now was the first book of the New Testament written. Now, th there's no way to say this for certain. Many people believe that perhaps the very first letter written by the Apostle Paul was written somewhere around 50 to 51 AD, but there's a very good chance that this letter of James was written perhaps AD 46 to 49, something like that. There's a very good chance that this was the first letter of the New Testament written, and it seems to have been written at a time when the church was still predominantly, I won't say exclusively, but predominantly Jewish in its character. In other words, Gentile believers 
had not yet started coming into the church in great numbers by the time that the book of James was written. We, we, we see an indication of this right in the first verse that I read to you. Notice how he describes the Christian community, the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Now, we'll get to that in a moment, but 12 tribes clearly being some kind of connection with ethnic Israel. But then we have this other issue at hand as well, that there are certain words and phrases scattered throughout this letter of James, which gives us the idea that it was written very early. I'll give you one example. If you look at James chapter 2, verse 2, it describes the Christian group as an assembly. It says, for if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings. That word for assembly is the same word as synagogue, the one that's used to describe Jewish gatherings. And so at this time, there was not really a high perception that the church was going to uh, come into its later form of being something that was predominantly made up of Gentile believers, with, of course, Jewish believers mixed in. But at this time, it was still very much according to its character of being a predominantly um, Jewish believer church. Uh, those who were believers in Jesus as Messiah and Lord, no doubt about it, they believed the correct things, but they came from a Jewish background themselves. So James introduces himself, James, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice two things here. First of all, James, even though we do believe this James to be the apostle, the half-brother to Jesus himself, he doesn't introduce himself as an apostle. He doesn't introduce himself as the half-brother of Jesus. For James, the title he would like to cling to is that one that's revealed to us there in verse 1, bond servant of God. And he really was. You see, it's fascinating to see that during the days of his earthly ministry, the brothers and sisters of Jesus, again, more properly, the half-brothers and half-sisters of Jesus, did not seem to believe in him or follow him. This is indicated to us, uh, for example, in passages like John chapter 7, verse 5, where they even questioned Jesus's sanity at that point. Um, it's indicated by uh, references to the brothers and sisters of Jesus in Mark chapter 6 and in Matthew chapter 13. They were not at least fully supportive of his messiahship and his mission while he walked this earth. Yet, yet, after his resurrection, and I mean the resurrection of Jesus, it seems that James, as well as the other half-brothers and sisters of Jesus, they did believe upon him in a mighty way. It seems that according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, James received a special resurrection appearance of Jesus. And isn't that an exciting thought? Can you just imagine that? That Jesus, after his resurrection, reserves a special appearance, a special um, you know, conversation between him and his half-brother. And you know for sure that after that, James believed. And he believed with such great devotion that an early history of the church says that James was such a devoted man of prayer that his knees had large and thick calluses, so much so that his knees looked like the knees of a camel. And that early church history also says that James was martyred in Jerusalem by being pushed from a high point from the temple. Yet, his fall did not kill him. And as he laid upon the ground, he was beaten to death to finish off the job. 
And even as he was being beaten to death, he prayed for those who attacked him. Surely this was a man who was utterly sold out for Jesus Christ. This was a man who did believe upon his half-brother, his Lord, his Savior with great devotion. And it's indicated here. He was truly a bond servant of God. By the way, that idea of a bond servant is very important. It's perhaps simply better translated just slave. It's a slave, a bond servant, someone who is, as it said, in a permanent state of devotion to another person. And according to some commentators, uh, the ancient Greeks had a very negative connotation of that word. We might look at that word and think that there's something noble, something wonderful about someone saying, well, I'm a bond servant of God. The ancient Greeks thought no such way. The Romans, they thought, no, that is only degrading. But no, it was transformed by the beautiful truth of Christianity saying, to be a bond servant of a wonderful Lord like Jesus Christ is better than to be what is often thought as a free man if that freedom would separate a person from God himself. Now, one other thing I want you to see in verse 1, where it says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's also a very important phrase. It translates the ancient Greek word kurios. Now, a kurios was a master of a doulos. Doulos is the word for bondservant or slave right there in verse 1. Okay, so you got the picture there? A kurios is a master of a doulos. And in the context, it means that James considered Jesus to be God. And how do I say that? Well, you, didn't I just say that perhaps a kurios, a lord, could simply be a master of a slave? No, no, no. Understand this. When he says of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, please remember that James was a Jew from a Hellenistic background. And the Jews of that culture, the Hellenistic Jews, used Kurios, Lord, as a name for God. And it's even used here with the article, the Lord Jesus Christ, which was a formulation grammatically, which was especially used for God. So right here, just in the first line, James declares himself, first of all, not as an apostle, not as someone with this high standing because he's related by blood as a half-brother of Jesus Christ, but no, he's a slave, a bondservant of God, and he's declaring, I recognize my half-brother Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. I recognize him as God, the Lord, and as Messiah, because that's the word Christ. It's a very, very weighty um uh, title given to Jesus just here in the very first line. Then secondly, it says, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Now, um, it seems, again, that he's referring to Christians. You read the rest of the letter, and there's no doubt about that. He's referring to those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it seems that he's writing to a church at a time when its predominant makeup is that of Jewish believers. Now, I'm not trying to say exclusive. This is a letter that applies to all Christians. Yet since James seemed to write this letter before Gentile believers came into the church in great number, it has a very Jewish feel to. And this idea of the 12 tribes is really just a Jewish figure of speech that sometimes refers to the Jewish people as a whole. 
Now, again, that concept of the 12 tribes was very strong among the Jewish people, even though they had not lived in their tribal allotments of land for centuries. Now, here, James is recognizing something, that he is something of an apostle to the Jewish believers. Do you remember that the apostle Paul was called as an apostle to the Gentiles? James has something of a apostleship to Jewish believers. Matter of fact, in Galatians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul described some of the first century apostles as, this is the phrase he used, the apostleship to the circumcised. That is to say that they mainly had their ministry to the lost sheep of Israel, both in evangelism and then discipleship with those who had already given their lives to Jesus Christ. In the same context, Paul mentions James there in Galatians chapter 2, so it's pretty fair to regard James as someone who did, in fact, have this apostleship to the circumcised, that is, the Jewish people. And so, since the Jewish people were scattered abroad, of course, across the Roman Empire and even beyond, there was a Christian presence in almost every Jewish community in these 20, 25 years after, actually we're talking about less than 20 years, after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, since it was written for Christians, not just in Jerusalem, but Christians as they existed in the world, across the scattered communities of Jewish people all over the world, we could say that this is a letter for us today. It was a letter for the Christians in the world at that time. And if we are Christians in the world at this time, we can say that this is indeed a letter to us. Now, you will find some people who think that the letter of James is not important for Christians today. And they like to quote Martin Luther's famous uh, estimation of James and his letter. He called the letter of James this, quote, an epistle or a letter full of straw. You know, straw like hay. In other words, something not having much substance or meat to it. But we should understand Martin Luther's comment about the letter of James in its context. You see, Luther was frustrated because sometimes those people who wanted to promote salvation by human effort, by human works, they would quote certain verses taken somewhat out of context from the book of James. They would quote them against Martin Luther. And what Martin Luther was trying to observe when he called James a letter full of straw was that there wasn't much in the letter of James that advanced that great truth of justification by faith alone through grace alone. But for James, just alone as a letter, Paul, excuse me, uh, Martin Luther had a very high estimation of it. In another place, Luther wrote regarding the letter of James, quote, I think highly of the epistle of James and regard it as valuable. It does not expound human doctrines, but lays much emphasis on God's law. That's from William Barclay's commentary, where he cites that from Martin Luther. You see, Martin Luther knew and taught exactly what the book of James teaches. Uh, again, this isn't from a commentary that Luther wrote on the book of James. This is from his preface to his commentary on the book of Romans. And this is what Martin Luther writes about saving faith in the preface on his commentary 
on the book of Romans. Ready? Quote, Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good things incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done this and is constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes and looks around for faith and good works, but knows neither what faith is nor what good works are, yet he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works, end quote. Do you see what Martin Luther's saying there in that section from his preface to his commentary on the book of Romans? He's saying that real faith will be demonstrated in action, in good works that flow forth from a person's lives. And brothers and sisters, that is fundamentally the same message that James has all throughout his letter. Now, the other thing I like about the book of James, and we'll just say this before we go on to verse 2. I like the book of James because it echoes the teaching of Jesus. There seem to be at least 15, let me count that, 10, 5 more, 15 allusions to the Sermon on the Mount in the letter of James. This book was written by a man who knew the teaching of Jesus and who took it very seriously. So that's the one who gives greetings. Again, let me read verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. Now, verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What a beginning. I mean, after that greeting in verse 1, James, right out of the gate, just like the book of Proverbs, he's not messing around, but he's getting into it right away. And what does he say? He says, my brethren, count it all joy. In other words, estimate it, consider it. Consider it a joyful, happy thing when what happens? When you fall into various trials. You know the first thing I like about that? James seemed to regard it as inevitable that you and I as Christians would have trials. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Not if you fall into them, but when you fall into them. So trials are inevitable. Now, maybe I should just back up for a moment and say, what do we mean by trials? Well, the Old King James Version, by the way, I teach from the New King James Version. The Old King James Version translates it like this. It says, when ye fall into diverse temptations. In other words, when you fall into all different kinds of temptations. Actually, trials is a better translation there of the, than the word temptations. It sort of signifies the idea of an affliction, a persecution, a testing of any kind. You know, I know a pastor friend of mine who comes from sort of a, uh, well, he comes from somewhat of a gang background. And so before he was a believer, he ran into trouble with the law and he had more than one appearance in court. And when he first heard Christian talking about trusting God in the midst of trials, 
The only thing he could think of from his prior experience was a courtroom trial. So he's thinking, yeah, whenever I'm in the court standing before the judge and there's the jury over there, I need to trust God in the midst of those kind of trials. Look, that's not the kind of trials that James is speaking about here. Though if you ever should find yourself on trial in that sense, you should trust God in the midst of that as well. But that's not the kind of trials. The idea of a trial is a testing, a, an experience where your patience, your faith will be stretched and you will fall into various trials. Your, your life will be faced by occasional difficulty, occasional testing, and sometimes it feels like more than occasional. There are seasons in our life when it seems to be one trial, one testing, one challenge after another. Now, James says, in those seasons when you fall into various trials, what does he tell you to do? What does he tell me to do? He says, count it all joy. Now, I like what William Moffat, a great um, New Testament commentator and translator, did. He translated James chapter 1, verse 2 like this. He says, greet it as all joy. Excuse me, greet it as pure joy is what Moffat translated as. He pointed out that there's sort of a play on words between the last word of verse 1, which is greeting, and then these words in verse 2. In other words, it's a similar word. Um, greetings, and then he says, greet it as all joy when you fall into various trials. There is a sense in which when we face challenge and hardship and difficulty as believers, we can greet those things as actually things that God will use, God will bless, God will work through in the midst of our Christian life. We do not have to have a sour pessimistic view about our life, about our Christian living, feeling that, oh, it's just woe is me and it's problem after problem. No, we, we will fall into various trials and God has a blessing for us in the midst of those trials. What does he say right here? He says very plainly, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Your faith will be tested in the trial and that test will produce more patience. Now, I love that word that's translated patience. It's the ancient Greek word hupomone. Now, that word doesn't really describe a passive waiting. That's what we usually think of patience as. Patience is the ability to just chill out when nothing's happening and to um, embrace the boredom and just kind of wait until it's my turn to be called until the light changes from red to green, whatever it would be. That's not the kind of patience that's being spoken about here. Actually, hupomone, that great Greek word that's translated here, actually has the idea of active endurance. This isn't so much the quality that helps you to sit quietly in a doctor's waiting room, but it's the quality that helps you to finish a marathon. It's active endurance. It comes from two ancient Greek words, hupo, which means under, and meno, which means to stay or abide or remain. It means basically to remain under. The idea is this, somebody being under a heavy load, yet they choose to remain under that load. They choose to endure under that load. And why? Why would they do it? Because they know Again, verse 3, that the testing of your faith produces patience. I want you to notice something. It says here that faith is 
tested through trials. It doesn't say that faith is produced by trials. Trials reveal the faith that we do have. Not because God doesn't know how much faith we have. It's not like God sits up in heaven and says, well, I don't know how much faith David Guzik has. Let me allow a trial in his life. And then I'll say, no, God knows how much faith. Here's the thing. I don't know how much faith I have. And the trial and my reaction under the trial exposes how much faith that I have. Again, faith is tested in the trial. It's not necessarily produced in the trial. How is faith fundamentally produced? I like what Romans chapter 10, verse 17 tells us. Do you know that verse? So then, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Supernaturally, faith is built into us as we hear, as we understand, as we trust in God's word. You see, the whole bottom line is God does not allow trials into our life to break down our faith, but rather to expose the faith we have and through it all to produce endurance, patience, so that we can continue on strong and even better in our Christian life. That's the idea in verse 3 when he says that these trials produce patience. This is what I want to understand. This endurance or patience that can come forth from trials, this is not inevitably produced in times of trials. In other words, if difficulties come my way and I choose to receive those difficulties with unbelief, with grumbling, then the trial can produce bitterness and discouragement in my life. That's why James challenges me and you also to count it all joy. For me to count it all joy when I fall into various trials, that's my response of faith. Faith says, Lord, this is difficult. Lord, this is bad. Lord, I don't know how I'm going to make it through this, but I believe that you are still in control. I believe that you have a purpose. I am going to trust you in this. And matter of fact, I ain't even going to count it that you are going to do something good and wonderful in this, and I am going to be joyful in that. James did not tell us to say it's all joy or to feel it all joy or that trials themselves were joy. He said, no, estimate it as joy. Count it as joy. Now, if we, as he says here, count it all joy when we fall into various trials, now verse 3, knowing that the testing of my faith produces patience, but, he says, starting out verse 4, let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, that work of patient endurance comes slowly. It must be allowed to have full bloom. Patient endurance is the mark of the person who is perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. That's kind of interesting. One commentator I read, a man named Adam Clark. I like Adam Clark's commentaries. Um, Adam Clark said, that these expressions, as they are presented in this letter of James, comes from the Greek Olympic Games. Well, or their athletic context. They not only had the Olympic Games, they had other games, the Corinthian Games, whatever, but the Greek Games. They said the man was perfect if he gained the victory. He was entire and had everything complete if 
he completed the pentathlon, uh, or we would call it today in our modern Olympic Games, the decathlon, the one where there's several different events. In the pentathlon, there were five different exercises that the Greek athletes would complete in. You would be perfect if you won and complete if you won all five of them. So that's possibly where he gets this idea. He's telling people, be perfect and complete. You're going to come through. You're going to come through a winner, just like somebody in the Greek games, perhaps even the Olympic games. But there's another idea behind perfect and complete. Some people think that this idea comes from the world of animal sacrifice, that before an animal was to be sacrificed, especially in a Jewish context, and please remember, this letter of James was written while there was a still functioning temple in Jerusalem, and most all Christians being from a Jewish background at that time would be quite familiar with the um, aspects of animal sacrifice. Again, the idea was that an animal had to be judged perfect and complete before it could be sacrificed. Well, if we allow God to do this work in us, that will be the effect. Let me read verse 4 to you again. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Do you know what this means? This means that if we embrace the trials, the difficulties, the problems of our life, if we will embrace them in faith, then God can do a wonderful work in our life in and through those trials. I like what Charles Spurgeon said about this. Let me quote to you something that Charles Spurgeon wrote. Ready? Quote, I have looked back to times of trial with a kind of longing, not to have them return, but to feel the strength of God as I have felt it then, to feel the power of faith as I have felt it then, to hang upon God's powerful arm as I hung upon it then, and to see God at work as I saw him then. C can you relate to what Charles Spurgeon said in those words? That we don't long for trials. We're not running after trials. We're not trying to bring trials. Listen, I don't know about you, but I bring plenty of trials into my own life. I, I don't have to seek to add them. But, but let me say this. When we see the strength of God come through in a mighty powerful, glorious way, we can simply say, well, Lord, I wouldn't want this trial again, but it was worth it. You did something wonderful in this because I saw your strength. I saw your provision. I saw your goodness in the land of the living. Even though it was difficult, even though I thought that this trial might crush me, you showed yourself faithful. That's a wonderful place for the believer to be. Now, those are an exciting three verses, verse two, three, and four. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, starting at verse five, he's going to speak about how we can receive the wisdom that we need from God. Ready for this? Verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, 
For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. For he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Right now, we kind of get a context. Somewhat like the book of Proverbs, it's not always clear the context between different statements that James gives us. But I think we can make a link between verses 2, 3, and 4, and now verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. In 2, 3, and 4, he talks about the values of trials. And now, starting at verse 5, he talks about the value of wisdom. I don't know about you, but me, when I'm in the midst of a trial, a problem, a challenge, I need God's wisdom. So I need James to help me seek after God's wisdom. And he counsels me and all of us, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. That's from verse 5. Trials bring a necessary opportunity for us to seek wisdom from God. And we often don't know our need for wisdom until we're in the midst of that kind of problem, that kind of trial. You know, sometimes one of the greatest things we need to know, one of the greatest examples of wisdom that we need to know in a time of trial is simply this. Lord, is this something that you want to remove from my life? Or is this something that you want to give me strength to persevere through in the midst of my life? I think that's a very important aspect of wisdom. You see, in the midst of these trials, these problems, these challenges, we need wisdom a lot more than we need knowledge. Knowledge is raw information, and believe me, it's helpful. But wisdom knows how to use that knowledge. Someone once said that knowledge is the ability to take things apart, but wisdom, that's the ability to put things back together again. And it seems like when our life is falling apart, we need wisdom from God to know how we can do what we can do to help things hang together. So what do we do when we need this wisdom in a time of problem, trial, challenge? He says there in verse 5, let him ask of God. If you want to receive that wisdom, simply ask of God. He gives this wisdom generously. Verse 5 says liberally. And he also gives it without despising our request. That's the idea behind the phrase, without reproach. You know, so often, in the midst of our time of trial, of problem, of challenge, we are so willing to go to anybody except to God. We'll ask books. We'll ask people. We'll go to ceremonies. We'll go to customs. We'll go to podcasts. We'll go to YouTube. We'll go anywhere, but where we won't go to is God. And we need to ask God for wisdom. And if you want God to speak to you, you know the fundamental place where you need to listen to him. Where is the chief, the fundamental place that God speaks to us? He speaks to us in and through his word, the Bible. If you want to hear the voice of God, read your Bible. Now, I do believe that there are times when God speaks to us in a wonderful way by his Holy Spirit. I believe in the voice of the Holy Spirit. I believe what Jesus said, that his sheep hear his voice. But, but, we don't seek a voice from God. And I'm not speaking about an audible voice. I'm just speaking about that inner assurance of God's word to us. No, we don't seek that in any other place than his word directly. 
Seek God when you want wisdom and seek that wisdom in and through his word. When we want wisdom, the place to begin and the place to end is the Bible. True wisdom will always be consistent with the Bible. So, ask God, but, notice this in verse 6, let him ask in faith. When you're going to ask God for wisdom, it has to be like anything that you would ask for from God. You need to ask in faith without doubting God's desire to give or his ability to give. Now, right now, you can use this as a foundation, as a promise to God that God does want you to ask for wisdom. You know, when I'm praying for people, I like to pray according to the promises of God. And something that I will often pray is like this. I say, Lord, I pray that you give my brother, my sister, whatever it might be. Lord, I pray that you give my brother wisdom and we have confidence in this request because you say in the first chapter of James, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach. We can have confidence knowing that God does want to give us wisdom. And if you want to see that prayer answered again, get yourself into God's word and through his word and through the Holy Spirit, God will reveal his wisdom to you. But you need to come in faith. We need to come to God in faith, not doubting, and ask of God in faith. You know, there is such a thing of coming to God, kind of thinking you're asking, but really not asking God of anything. We come to God asking for nothing, and you know what? That's what we get, nothing. No, God wants us to ask. He wants us to ask in reverence, in humility before him, but in faith, with no doubting. Did you see that line in verse 6? Ask in faith and ask with no doubting. Verse 7, let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. The one who doubts, the one who lacks faith, should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. You see, this lack of faith and trust in God shows that we really have no foundation, that we are, in fact, unstable in all our ways. That's in verse 8. How? Like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. That's in verse 6. He who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. You know, I think that a wave of the sea is in fact a very fit description, an appropriate description of someone who is hindered by unbelief and by unnecessary doubts. Why? Well, a wave of the sea is without rest. The waves always come. Oh, I know. Listen, and we surfers, we can tell you that sometimes the waves are bigger and sometimes they're smaller, but there's always some kind of action. The waves are without rest and so is the doubter. The waves of the sea are unstable and so is the doubter. A wave of the sea is driven by the winds, and so is the doubter. Whatever winds of doctrine or custom or emotion or excessive feeling come upon him or her, that's what drives them. And a wave of the sea is capable of great destruction, and so is the doubter. No, we don't want to be like the waves of the sea in that sense. We want to be 
firm in our faith on that firm foundation of believing that we have a loving God in heaven who will answer when we come to him and ask for wisdom. To be different from this is to be as verse 8 declares, notice, a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. To ask God, but to ask him in a doubting way shows that we are double-minded. What does it mean to be double-minded? Well, if you had no faith whatsoever, you'd never ask God at all. If you had no unbelief, then you'd have no doubting. To be kind of in that middle ground between faith and unbelief, that is to be double-minded. You know, according to an excellent commentator on the book of James, a guy named D. Edmund Hebert, Hebert says that double-minded here is literally two-souled. And Adam Clark adds this, quote, The man of two souls, who has one for the earth and another for heaven, who wishes to be secure in both worlds, he will not give up earth, and he is loath to let heaven go. That's what a double-minded person is. They're trying to live in the middle. Now, do you remember in Mark chapter 9, verse 24, when there was a man who came to Jesus and he said this, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I do not believe that that man was double-minded. He wanted to believe and he declared his belief. His faith was weak, but it wasn't tinged with the poison of double-minded doubt. No, my friends, to the very best of our ability, we need to come to God and we say, Lord, help get me out of that middle ground. Maybe it's something like, maybe not exactly, but something like the middle ground that Jesus would later speak about when he dictated letters to the seven churches in what is today modern-day Turkey. To the church in one particular place, he accused them of being lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, but in a very unpleasant place in the middle. That's being double-minded. You have too much faith to be truly called an unbeliever, but you have too much doubt that you're choosing to hold on to to really walk in the blessings and benefits of faith. No, brothers and sisters, we need to ask God and ask him to help us put away any remnant of double-mindedness. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He said this, quote, Do you believe that God can give you wisdom and that he will do so if you ask him? Then go to him at once and say, Lord, this is what I need. Specify your wants. State your exact condition. Lay the whole case before God with as much orderliness as if you were telling your story to an intelligent friend who is willing to hear it and prepared to help you. And then say, Lord, this is specifically what I think I want. I ask this of you, believing that you can give it to me. What great practical advice from Charles Spurgeon. Come to God. Choose to believe. To the best of your ability, put away the doubts, put away the unbelief and say, Lord, you are a good God 
who has promised to bring me wisdom. And I don't know how you're going to bring me the wisdom, but I am going to read your word, meditate it upon my heart, and keep my heart and my ear open for the voice of your spirit and believe that you will bring to me the wisdom that I need. Listen, you are like me. You're aware of your need for God's wisdom. You're aware of it perhaps because you're in the midst of some kind of problem, some trial, some challenge. Then let's do it. Let's ask God, believing that he will bring it to us and trust that God will fulfill these promises because he's a good God who loves us very much. Mm -hmm.